Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Ponytails Podcast. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. If this is your first episode, welcome, welcome. Let me tell you a little bit about what we do. We interview book people. And if you're a book person, you totally know what that means. But if you did not sell books door to door for Southwestern Advantage during your college summers, let me tell you a little bit about it. Southwestern Advantage recruits college kids to go door to door for 80 hours a week selling books like physical books to families who need help with homework or for elderly learning education. And of course, some websites to go along with their books, but they've been doing this since 1868. Uh, it used to be Bibles. And then in the seventies, they switched to doing books. And so we go and find people who did this program for 12 weeks of their summer for 80 hours a week on straight commission. And we ask them what they're up to now and how that experience shaped who they are today how it's maybe affected them positively, sometimes not so positively, and just get their experience and perspective on this whole journey that's been since Southwestern and beyond. So hopefully you guys enjoy. It's led to a bunch of amazing stories. Some of them are funny, some of them are tragic, some of them inspirational, but overall very impactful to our listeners and to myself. I am honored to be your host and hopefully you guys enjoy the show. A little bit about my guest today, um, I have Eric Plantenberg on the show with me. He is currently in Bend, Oregon. Um, you guys might have remembered the episode with uh, Michelle Mitchell, who co-founded Hum Kombucha. Eric was one of the people that did that with her. So I'm excited to hear that story. Um, he was originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin. He attended uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, sold from 1990 to 1994 for four and a half summers. So that'll be another fun story to hear about why that 0.5 is in there. Um, his favorite scroll from the Ogmandino's greatest salesman in the world is number two. I will greet this day with love in my heart. And if you want to get a hold of him, you can find him on socials and or probably on LinkedIn. I'll ask exactly. You guys can see the link below to anything uh, to contact Eric with. So if you guys want to just say hi to him or maybe uh, inquire about some of the topics that we're going to share today, make sure you go check it out there. And when I come back, I'll be on with Eric. Hello. <laughs> What's up, Andres? Oh, man, just uh, like I always say, taking over the world. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. That's my pleasure. Where did you get that guitar riff? That's that's outstanding. Uh, we paid for that. Yeah. We had a, we paid an artist to do that for us. Yeah, it's kind cool. of fun, isn't it? Very cool. At the, at the end of the episode, actually, I don't even know if most people know this because people probably tune off right as we start saying the final announcements. But at the end, there's like an acoustic version of it that plays. So right. yeah, that's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, nice. What should I start with? Mango passion fruit or strawberry lemonade? Oh, oh you know, flip a coin. Uh, no. I choose strawberry, but mango is good stuff. I'll do I'll do the strawberry to, to kick off with because that way it's off to a hot, hot start. <laughs> like Very we want good. it to be in the summer. Well, cheers. Um, man. Clink. Yes, sir. Cheers. 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 Mm. That's so fun. Um, I, honestly, we always start in different places when we do this thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'll, I'll give you a choice between two positives, if that's okay. Uh, I would love to hear the story from your side and your experience of starting Hum and, mm -hmm. and being there, being a co-founder, or uh, just kind of what you've been up to in general, maybe the, the longer story uh, of since you left books, what have you been up to now and kind of what's your life been like over the last couple of decades since you sold? Yeah. Okay. General well, topics. <laughs> for starters, I love the format here, Andres. You and I don't know each other. I know a little bit about you, like your rad story of leaving Columbia and 
making your way to Nebraska and then selling books. And that's really cool. And then here we are having a kombucha or, you know, if we were sitting down at a bar and talking. So I, I love the format. Thanks for having me on your show. I just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel nice. Yeah. Appreciate you know, I'll start, I'll start with the latter because it dovetails pretty well into the hum story. Great. Which, which is, which is pretty interesting. So I did sell for four and a half summers coming out of the university of Wisconsin and after books, I was pretty vagabondy. I had spent a bunch of time in Africa and the Middle East. I had road tripped after my third summer from Virginia to Alaska, um, Mexico. Like I was just I was just like kind of if if there was a place far away with something cool to see, like that's what I was really motivated to do. And I was in Tanzania, a little island called, um, Zan not Zambia, um, Zanzibar. And I, I was on a couple of month trip in Africa. And I kind of thought I was cool because here I am like 23, <laughs> four years old. Like I'm, I'm on a beach in, in the middle of the Indian Ocean and off the coast of Africa. And it was a blast. And it was a goal. It was like one of my big book field goals to travel you know, to get out and see the world. Yeah. And I meet this guy who's probably 30 something, 32, 33. He's about 10 years older than I am. And he, he's traveling and I, I come up to him as an American guy. And I was like, Hey, like how long have you been traveling? And like, not with like a massive ego, but I thought that I was maybe cooler than I was at 23 for like traveling for three months and, and, and doing that. And I'll never forget the guy looks at me and he, he kind of stares off and he goes, uh, two years. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I had an aversion at that age to like trust fund kids because I had to really bust my ass to like get from A to B. And, you know, I had, a, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. So I immediately thought he was a trust fund kid and whatever. But as we got to talking, you know, I learned so much from him. He was completely self-made. And I just, mm. once I like connected with him, I was like, how did you do that? And he, he laid it out. He's like, you know, I worked really hard. I didn't subscribe to the corporate life. I didn't subscribe to working myself to death. I, I learned about passive income. I learned about residual income and I built a business and now I get paid and I can kind of do whatever I want. So when I was 23, like right out of the book field, I like laser beam, I'm going to do that. Like that is what I'm going to do. So I, I set the goal to be able to, in my early thirties, be able to kind of do whatever I want and take a time and a gap and whatever. Um, so that framed like a lot of that. And I don't think without the book field, I would have gotten my brain around that kind of a big goal. Cause you know, growing up in Wisconsin, um, most of my family, if you look back, were either farmers or they were machinists. My grandparents were, you know, both very blue collar, um, people were maybe going to college, like aunts and uncles were going to college, kind of yeah. like all of them. And then go Midwest. Yeah, go go Midwest. And you know, and then here I am, you know, already, you know, traveling the world and whatever. So to set a goal that big would not have happened if I hadn't been exposed to 
a lot of the mindset that I had been and the disciplines that I had been in, in the book business. So that really kind of started a trajectory for me. That, but that's, I mean, to realize that at that age is a big deal. Like most 23 year olds, even the, even the ones that sold books don't really have that still to have that mentality yet so to have that be something that you were exposed to. That's really like, such a cool blessing i mean just to 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 have that opportunity to meet that guy because imagine he could have you know you didn't even talk to him what you know what would your life have been without that interjection there no i'm a big believer in synchronicity i'm a big believer that there's serendipities in the world i don't think that everything has like a cosmic meaning but i think the ones that you that really like turn the lights on do um you know and to be exposed i had an uncle have an uncle that you know gave me a book when i was 16 called the way of the peaceful warrior and it was really the first personal development book that i read it was pre-southwestern it was one of the reasons that i gravitated towards southwestern is because of the culture of reading and of learning and of personal development so i remember reading that book and just being blown away that people were looking at life and the relationship between uh, in Dan Mil- Dan Millman is the author of, of Way of the Peaceful Warrior. You know, he really had a holistic look at the mind-body-spirit connection. And that's really what that book is about. And it's about a young man's, you know, arc of life of like, how do you, how do you become the person that you ultimately want to be, that you feel most comfortable in your own skin with? I think that's maybe for that's me, the, gra- the greatest goal in life is, you know, to do that. But to get again, that's that's so cool. I mean, to have that it, it wisdom imparted on you at such a, a young age is so like again serendipitous, right? That had to have happened, and they changed how you view the world. I I think it's cool that 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 someone didn't mention this. Someone hasn't mentioned this in a while, but Southwestern's culture of like reading and self development. Yeah. I don't think we've talked about that that much, if at all, on the show. And that is something that it. it you, you kind of take for granted until it's gone. Cause when you leave the book field, the friends that you go surround yourself with after Southwestern that aren't, yeah. you know, in Southwestern, they don't really have that. That's not something that the average Joe generally you bump into. No, well, I mean, how many people have, you know, had almost like required reading, you know what I mean? It's obviously not yeah. required, but you know, of Og Mandino, you know, Norman Vincent Peale, Andrew, excuse me, Dale Carnegie, like on and on and on. I yeah. mean, Zig Ziglar. And yeah, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that, that for me, the ability to surround myself with people that were thinking bigger, expanding themselves working their tail off and then growing personally. Like if I had to say, what was the part of Southwestern that you cherish the most? That would definitely be it. Yeah. 100%. Well, and the people that come off that too. So it's not just, it's the culture and the people that build that culture. Um, it's hard to walk away from that. Did you find it easy to leave Southwestern when you left? Super easy. I left halfway through my fifth summer as an org leader. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what happened whoa like i can come back i can we can come back to that um i'm super happy to talk about that i mean the one thing that i am just really really adamant about is like my own personal integrity like following my compass and my compass said you are done selling books like done yeah and and then that's when it ended um 
on a Tuesday afternoon in Connecticut, I called up JT, JT Olson, who, you know, yeah, remains on the show. Yeah. He's a hero of mine. He always will be. And, um, wow. you know, to have that, that was a hard phone call, you know, yeah. you called JT as an org leader and say, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and for people who maybe didn't sell books who are listening in because maybe you know, their family members are just non-book people, that's yeah. in the in the scheme of life, what you did makes sense. And I actually am a believer in, hey, sometimes you, you know when it's the time to do whatever it is you need to do. In this mm-hmm. case, it was leave the Southwestern world and go move on to the next thing. For me, it was move to Portland about to see about a girl, right? Yeah. That kind yeah. of stuff. You have to do it. There's no question, right? But in a, in a maybe not so great way in the southwestern culture leaving in that manner is very frowned upon and so that's oh. what makes it hard so that, that's probably like like when like i got I was, we were yeah it, it, it was really really interesting and and that was actually my one of my favorite parts about the southwestern experience because like i was completely blackballed from like a lot of social groups and there were two people that walked kind of across that line, uh, Roger Sipe and Tommy Dunn. And, you know, really, really, really good friends of mine that had to look me in the eye and go, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Like, like we need to talk about this. And yeah. I really appreciated that out of both of them. You know, it wasn't like outcast, like whatever. It was like, what Shunned. happened? Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and that was, that was a really, really good thing. And then, you know, to fast forward the story, so many people, I, I think one of the demarcation points about people that sold books is the ability to integrate what people learned and the positive components of it into their next phase in life um, versus people that just thought that was some crazy experience and didn't really find it relevant in whatever they were doing next, which for me, it was so rich that like, regardless of how I left, I was gonna take all of that wealth of knowledge and experience and then move it. So I, when I was, I was just wrapping up my degree, I took eight semesters, sorry, I took seven years to do my eight semester undergrad. So I I wasn't like the, I wasn't a professional college student, but, Like I would go for a semester and then I'd travel for a year and then I'd go for two semesters and travel for a semester. Um, You know, I mean, I had to get from my own college. So when you make 20 or 30 grand in a summer, you've got a lot of choices. Yeah. Especially in the nineties. Cause now people listening to 2023, it's like, that's half the tuition now, but right. No, no, no. no. My tuition is. Yeah. It's the equivalent of having, you know, $700,000 in a summer compared to tuition, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I come back to Madison after a bunch of travel and was wrapping up my degree. I'm no longer going to sell books. It's the first time since my freshman year of college that I'm not selling books and or prepping for a summer while I'm in school. And I'm not going to work at all. Like, I'm definitely not going to work. This is going to be my first. And I'm, I'm dating a girl who had lost her father and she's like, Hey, my older brother wants to meet you. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of in the dad role and he's like 15 years older. And, uh, you know, we weren't super serious, but we were, we were dating. And 
well, plus you're I, good at interacting with that situation because of your experience in the book field, like how to oh, make yeah. a fair, yeah, you're, you're in. Yeah, this is great. So I go and it wasn't about the dating relationship at all. Um, my girlfriend was telling him about me and my book selling stuff. And it was like a straight up job interview recruiting. He's like, Hey, I've got a startup company and I heard great things about you. I want to meet you. And by the end of an hour, I was like, okay, I've got a new mentor. Like this guy is a rock star. He ran the Eastern division of Pepsi at one point, young, aggressive, aggressive guy. And um, he was in his mid thirties and he put me under his wing and I got hired as an intern because he's smart and didn't give me a title. And he basically said, go fetch coffee. And within literally, it was a pet treat company. It was dog treats. And within literally three weeks, I had outsold the rest of the company <laughs> using basic, basic book field stuff. You know, I remember calling a, a distributor that sold pet treats and uh, I called them up and I said, Hey, you know, here's my product and here's what we're doing. They're like, no, no, we're not interested. And all I said was, Oh, I'm sorry. I guess you haven't heard about me. You know, here's what we're up to. And <laughs> like, literally that's what I did. I mean, it wasn't like rocket. Oh, it was like an objection. That's what you say. And I hung up the phone 10 minutes later, selling a semi truck full of dog treats. And oh my gosh. They couldn't <laughs> believe it. So a couple weeks later, I'm at the job for like two months now. I got promoted to national sales manager 100% on the stuff that I had learned in Southwestern. Like, I mean, like I didn't know how to do any of this <laughs> except for what I've been taught. And I just found it so like one-to-one -one relating, like setting a schedule, prospecting, answering objections, like anything that you would like fundamentally be able to do after your first summer, you know, I could do without any wow. training. Yeah. So anyway, so, so I, I did that for a year. We took sales from 200 grand to a million in a year. And the company went bankrupt because they were growing too fast, outspent their cash flow, like a whole bunch of mm. problems. I didn't know. In inventory. About. Yeah. I didn't know anything stuff about you're in Shark Tank. I don't like, I just know how to sell stuff and I don't know anything else. And then that was a bit of a buzzkill for me because I was already like counting my stock options and, and stuff. Yeah. Which, you know, that's fine. I was 24. So towards the end of that, I'm kind of looping back here. Um, my main job at that point was to fly around to distributors and talk to them about how to sell our product and why our product matters. Right. And it was room full of per people after room full of people. They were all between the ages of like 30 and 50 that their job was to sell stuff and they knew nothing about sales. Uh, they didn't know how to set a schedule, how to like make a presentation. Their attitudes were horrible. I mean, it was just like, it was just disastrous. So and I, here I am like 24 going, how do you people who are in your forties, like not know this stuff? Like how did you get through 20 years of unreal? So I, I didn't take for granted what I learned at Southwestern. I just didn't have anything to compare it to. Right. Cause you're just like, you just, and this happens, we hear this kind of thing every once in a while. My brother was talking about how um, 
you remember Dave Brown? Or did you know Dave Brown after Southwest? He sold in like early 2000s, but he was like, you know, 20,000 unit producer. Now he's like the head of Southwestern Consulting. Oh, cool. Which is, you know, the coaching, they do sales coaching. And uh, shout out Will Metro. And um, so my brother, who is now a DSM at the company at Southwestern Advantage, was he was shadowing Dave just because they were, he was in town or something. I don't remember the whole story, but long story short, he was in, in, in one of the meetings where he was going to do a training. And so now my brother is going, all right, so this must be like the next level stuff. Like this yeah. is going to be the bread. And, I mean, we know about, you know, <laughs> closing schedule, but this is going to be like Dave Brown showing, you know, this corporate guy. And I guess Dave sits down and he's like, okay, schedule is your lifeline. And Danny's like, what right <laughs> it's like just to say and, and 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 just to think that like how we like you said it's not you take it for granted but once you start really understanding how everyone else does sales it's like oh most people don't know anything about sales like even yeah. top sales people don't know so like it's it, and then you don't mean to be judgmental about it either but it's just one right. of those things where it's like, like every time i meet a guy that didn't sell books and like i don't know they're, they're being introduced to me and they go oh i'm a salesman i've been in top sales for my whatever mm -hmm. you don't want to it's not like you don't think oh they don't know anything but mm -hmm. in your head you're probably like i wonder if this person knows what a field felt found closes mm -hmm. you know or you're sure. just a simple basic thing that you and i smile talk slow turn sideways like just a, so it's so interesting you know what i mean yeah to, to yeah. see that difference wow yeah it's really amazing so i got bored talking about dog treats with all of these people that didn't know anything about selling yeah so that makes sense i wrote a little program on a flight to salt lake city one day and the program was like how to set goals that are meaningful to you, how to connect with your customers and how to manage your time. Really simple. Like, and, and I'm talking about like schedule is your lifeline. Like look people in the eye and like ask them about themselves. I mean, we're not talking about anything that's, and the owner of the distributorship, a everybody in the meeting was like jaw dropped, like, holy shit, this is amazing. And the owner of the distributorship walked up to me. He's about 65 years old. I'm 24. And he goes, son, who told you to say all that stuff? And I thought, shit, I, I went too far. Like, it's like, I, like I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't want to say my boss, cause that would have been a lie. And I was just like, well, sir, it was me. You know what I mean? I thought that that'd be beneficial. He, he said, Eric, that was the finest sales meeting I've seen in 40 years of business. And Crazy. I immediately called Roger Seip, who Roger and I were in the same org three, four summers, three summers. He was my OL twice. We were roommates. It just Roger's like one of the most beautiful humans to ever walk the earth. And he's, he's great. I, I said, Roger, we're starting a company. <laughs> And he's like, what? You know what I mean? He's like, what? You know, in, in the way that only Roger can do it. And, you yeah. know, he was doing stand-up comedy at the time and on yes. his like 40th summer or something. And <laughs> and he, you know, needed a reason to not sell books maybe. Um, so I was like, hey, this is what happened. I told him the story and he's like, all right, let's do it. So that's how Freedom Personal Development was started. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And we've, and we've had Roger 
on the show, he shared that part of it. I, I'm recalling this now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, cool. Like, like he, he was a professional comedian and wanted to figure out how to make a go with that. And he was so, I mean, is so good on stage. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Amazing. I'm not funny. And I wasn't a very good presenter at the time. I'm still not a great presenter, but I did it professionally for 18 years. So it kind of got a little more natural. Um, so that was 1996 is my 25th birthday. And we started a training company literally with no customers, no Rolodex, no <laughs> training modules, no nothing. And I, you know, I think we did $30 million worth of business in the next 10 years. That's so wild. Yeah. It was a blast. Really, really a blast. What, what aspects of, uh, creating a business from scratch were you were challenges that you maybe didn't foresee. And I'm asking this because mm -hmm. sometimes people leave the book field and they think because they sold books and all the stuff that we're talking about, which is a great, as Shane Weathers, Shane Weathers put it, it's a great Swiss army knife of, of yeah. talent to take in a company. Yeah, It's not the same as starting a company from scratch. There's things that like, for example, they don't ever teach you anything about legal stuff or accounting. Oh when you're selling books and that kind of stuff. So did you, that kind of, this is what we didn't get taught, but we ran a business during the summer. Was there anything that really caught you off guard or that maybe that you found that worked for you to really build a successful all around company? Well, yeah, I mean, this is where it's true and it's not true that like the pitch that you're going to run your own business during the summertime. Okay. That's true. Yes. And then there's, you're not though. I mean, you're not starting your own business. You know what I mean? Yes. You're not yep. doing product development. You're not doing billing. You're not doing account. I mean, yes, you're doing customer accounting. service. Yeah. You're, I mean, there's, there's like so much support from Southwestern that if anybody that's actually started a business, like you would kind of look at Southwestern summer and go, that's a great summer job where the sales training and the leadership training are spectacular but you're not really equipped to go start a business. No. And, and that's fine. And, and that doesn't mean you can't do it. You might be equipped from other ways, but it's, you know, yeah. I mean, I wrote a business plan, took it to the entrepreneurship department at the university of Wisconsin and said, you know, here's our plan. And the guy, the guy looked at me, the Dean of the department, he's like, okay, this is D work for sure. It's D work. Um, I'm going to give you like a D because you're so enthusiastic and positive about it. It's probably F work, <laughs> you know, and you know, there's lots of stories like that. You know, the founder of FedEx was told that his business plan sucked too. And that obviously was wrong. So, you know, there's a lot of what comes out of a college mindset or a textbook that doesn't account for how scrappy can solve most problems. Correct. I'm yeah. with you on that. And, 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 and that's what you can't teach, or I guess you can't, I mean, you can, cause that's what we learned, but that's what most people don't to on the flip side of that is like, whenever you would have, I'd have a, I, I was in the school of business sometimes and you're, you're taking your whatever business class and this guy's the business management class. He's a professor of business management, but he has a PH four PhDs on economics and business and finance. But it's like, have you ever like ran a business or right. like professor, have you actually gone you know, get the loan, put, you know, put your mortgage on it. 
you know, or gone door to door, like take the start an LLC, have it be under your name, build a business to $30 million. And then no, you haven't, you just, you learn the theory on it, which is valuable in some ways, but you're not, it's a blind leading the blind at that point. So the, the, when you say scrappy, you learn scrappy in Southwestern. Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. you can have everything else right and not have that scrappy sharpness of the sales it the business will fail but you can have the scrappiness and that's it and the business could still make it it that's, will likely make it totally agree with that totally agree with yeah. that yeah which is kind of like the story that that we heard also with hum that you guys did but before we get to that i don't want to talk about hum mm -hmm. yet but i was more curious about so you guys got scrappy with it did you know right away when you started that you wanted it to be 30 million dollars or were you guys thinking like let's just go one step at a time like how how was that vision for you at the beginning no no i told roger and, and we had different but similar certainly overlapping goals i told him when we started i said hey 10 years later i am leaving like, here's my goal. Oh, so I'm traveling the world. <laughs> like, we're going to build a great company together. And then I'm gone. Like, I'm, I've got this plan. And he was like, great. So we, you know, we really, really kind of gutted our way out. You know, the first many years were very much, you know, hand to mouth. Like, very much. Um, we had for five years. This is an, I love this story. Roger and I had one checkbook for the, for his personal finances, my personal finances and the business. One checkbook. <laughs> there wasn't much. How? You yeah, know, it's like, how we would sell something. We would have a training client and the money would come in and then we'd reinvest in the business or buy groceries. I mean, that's what we did for five years. Oh my gosh. And how did you know it would work? Like how, what kept you going and just scroll number three, I will persist until I succeed. Or we had so much fun. I mean, we would laugh ourselves silly, which Roger gets, you know, he carries that. He's so freaking funny. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just really, really good times. And we were young. We worked insane hours. We worked seven days a week and loved it. We just, we had a blast. And then we, you know, we mountain biked and we took time. We took two months. I took two months off. I, I kind of forget what Roger took. He took, a, he took time as well, but I would take two months off every single year, like regardless um, oh. and travel. Like, you know, like what I, we, we were both kind of habitually not locked to a nine to five, 50 hours a week. You know, like that wasn't me ever. Mm. And especially after my, you know, my young adulthood, you know, from 18 to 23, 24, I was really, really feral in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so, so you just kind of, you kind of just took it in stride and let it, let it just let, enjoy the process. You like really rode the roller coaster of yeah. starting a business from scratch. It's tough, man. It's, it's, oh, it's yeah. not easy. But I'm glad that that also speaks to the idea that some book kids actually have a struggle with this once they leave is the balance of the reality of life. Because we're used to going 80 hours a week, blinders on, 12 weeks, we're going to just jam for, for the whole summer, and then we're at checkout, right? But then we leave Southwestern and we feel like that's what our job is supposed to be like. And there's a lot of adjusting to, hey, it's you can take a nap during the day, like it's okay. You know, it's okay if you take two months off, 
you know, it's not, it's not off schedule. Like if anybody is listening to this, that's out on the book field right now. Okay. You can take a nap during the day. It's <laughs> like, this is the part about Southwestern that I was oil and water with. Um, I guess I'm just fiercely independent. I won the bag my first summer, gold seal gold. You know what I mean? Like I, I I'm teachable. Like I did what I was told. The Kool-Aid. It's all good. Yeah. By my fourth summer, by the second half of the summer, my goal was to hit President's Club in as few demos as possible. Yeah. So like, Because <laughs> you've got it down. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. It's like, why do 180 demos and work to that degree when you can be effective working less? That yeah. that was the piece of Southwestern. And I understand it's to set a good example for the rookies. I understand there's, I get that. And then, you know, I mean, this is no disrespect and I'll leave this one anonymous. Um, I think it was my third or fourth week of my fourth summer. You know, I was talented. I, I knew how to sell books. I knew how to close. I knew how to do all of that. And I was number two in power. And I knocked off Saturday after hitting my goal. It was like eight or 900, like whatever it was. It was my goal. I hit it by Saturday at like 10 a.m. And then I went and played golf. Yeah. And yeah, there's no problem. And instead of getting a congratulations, instead of, wow, Eric, that was your best week of your career. Dude, you hit your goals. Nice job. I got, wow, that's really disappointing. If you would have finished the day, you could have been number one in power. Yeah. And I was like, you're kidding me. Like, that's the most bullshit response, you know, from, you know, somebody that would have an opinion about that. Up, yeah. But I can imagine. I mean, that's a bullshit response. And yeah. it was hard for me to kind of like balance being so grateful and impressed by the leadership that I had. And receiving such contrary advice that I knew for me was bullshit. And it might be great for everybody else, but for me, like that was yeah. not going to work. Yeah, because the, the thing is, not everyone wants to be number one. For some people, like, for example, it, it, some people in the world, probably people that we've had on the show, want to go and make a billion dollars. Yeah. And that's, un, I mean, in fact, they probably will. There's probably people who I've yeah. talked to who are soon to be billionaires. But in my head, I'm like, if that means I have to like strap myself silly to this cause, commit everything, change as a person in a way that maybe isn't the best. Some, yeah. Sometimes I'm not saying that that's the case for everybody, but just if it means I have to like do that amount of work, maybe not. I'm happy if I make 10 million, like, and that's okay. Totally. You know, like yeah. totally great. I mean, that still takes a lot of work and it's still a lot of dedication. Right. But it's the same concept where it's like, why don't you want to be number one? Because, you know, honestly, number two is going to help me be able to travel. It's going to help me be able to pay off school and yeah. still have money left over that I don't have to work the rest of the year because that's okay. Number, you know, number one at what? I mean, that's the question. Yeah. Like, number one at what? Yeah. Like, yeah. What I want to be our division. What, what I want to be number one at is being me. You know, yeah. like I want to be number one at being me. Yeah. I don't want to be number one at you know, emulating someone else, you know, and, and that took me a long time to really rectify all of that. You know, I mean, I guess I, I say that now, and then I think back to all the times that I was 
that asshole student manager or sales manager or yep. business owner, you know, in, in my past, but that, you know, if there's any, if there's any one thing that I think the people that are on my teams appreciate, it's that I care more about them being themselves than I care about the objectives of the company. And that doesn't always mean that they need to stay at the company. Yeah. You know what well, I mean? Which is also where my oil and water starts with, yeah. with the experience. But yes, I understand exactly what you mean. Sometimes it's best for people to not come back Absolutely. or to be part of your organization, whatever yeah. that may be. Yeah, what, yes. whatever that is. You know, I, I had a thing at, at home. We, we had a really young sales team because when we started, we didn't have any money to hire senior executive people. And I knew how to train salespeople. So I didn't need to spend all the money on yeah, the guy that has 20 years of experience. So, you know, my national sales manager, uh, Sean Engel, was hired at like 26, 27 years old. And by the time he was 30, he cold called and opened Walmart. I mean, that's awesome. We did it together. And he made the call. He got the meeting. He set the momentum. And one day he walked in my office and I had prepped him on this for years. And he said, Eric, it's time for me to go. And I was like, awesome. Where are you going? And he was like, you really mean that? And I was like, of course I mean it. Yes. He's like, I, yes. just, got, I just got VP at another company. I didn't need a VP. He couldn't have been VP if he stayed at home. He got to double the salary and I got to be kind of like a proud mentor. I mean, he looks back at his experience with hum, which is, this is a key. He looks back at his experience at hum as some of the most transformative years of his entire life to this day, the way we kind of feel about Southwestern in a lot of ways, as we've been alluding to in this conversation, but there's no sour taste just like there is no sour taste in kombucha in this kombucha. There is no sour taste in his mouth of how you, he was treated both on the entry and on the exit of his experience at your company, which yeah. you left him better than you found him. That's all you could ask for as an employer. And he left thankful for the experience and honored to have worked with you, which how is yeah. that a bad thing? You know. And let's not forget, he made an insane impact in our growth. Yeah. You know what he I mean? Like, part of something I mean, that was bigger. People want yeah. to be a part of something big. Yep. Absolutely. Like checked all the boxes. Yeah. That is something that I found really cool about the culture that Michelle kind of spoke to that hum has and, mm-hmm. and why I was so you know enamored with like your company and like, yeah. honestly, what you guys did, which I'm sure we can get into that, but, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it's, it was a very palpable difference from the culture that we experienced because there is something negative about that part of the Southwestern culture. And yeah. it's hard to say the word negative, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, Oh, but they, it's, it's not positive sometimes for, and, and sometimes that can be really harmful for some people, but that's, I mean, it's not Southwestern's fault. It's just kind of the nature of the fact that we were 22 year old kids leading 19 year old kids. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Yeah, you're going to yeah. have some of that because we're just leaders learning too at that point, you know? And so it happens. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a very conservative, when I was there, I don't really know about the culture anymore. It's a very conservative culture and it's a very stay in the family. It's like leaving the Southwestern group of families was like not super cool. And, and I don't see it that way. Correct. Uh, we've said they put the Colton culture is the way, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
but but anyway, okay. So what happens when you go to Roger and you say, hey, I'm leaving? What happened between there and Hum? Or did you jump? Is that that was that the next jump or what what was the oh, yeah, position yeah, yeah, that yeah. So Roger Roger and I were together for 18 years. That's wild. You know what I mean? That's a we lot. Love Roger. Roger's yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I do too. I wish I saw him more often. Um, and you know, in those 18 years, similar to a band, you know, like what we were doing changed. We started off really doing training seminars. Like that's what we did. We sold tickets to training seminars for a bunch of years. And, you know, we built a company with 50 some people that were doing that. And it was great. And then his interests and my interest both moved deeper into more personal development, more like company culture. Like I was doing a lot of work with companies on establishing core values and how do you build an effective senior team? Like that was like the thing I was really interested in. And then that evolved in the end when Roger wrote his book, train your brain, I was not wanting to co-author that book with him at all. It was really his project. And we both felt hundred percent on that. That was great. And then I wrote a workshop called abundant living and abundant living was really different from a, a product standpoint. We'd never offered anything like it. It was a four day retreat. It wasn't a four hour seminar. It had logistics that were different. And then mostly it was probably the least duplicatable thing that we did. Um, meaning I kind of, I was like, it wasn't the Eric show, but it was like no one else could facilitate abundant living where other people could teach all of our other classes. And it was because it was just me talking about how I navigated life. It wasn't, you know, right. it was, it was, how do you take your career, your relationships, your physical health, your financial world and your contribution to your bigger community. How do you put that all in a bubble of your personal beliefs, whether you call it your spirituality or your philosophy or whatever that is, and then make them all work at the same time? Because so many people have the experience of spinning plates in their life. Their business is going really, really well, but then their fitness fails or their relationships are awesome and their fitness and their health are really good, but they can't really get their career going to where they want it to go or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And I just never subscribed to that. I, I'm not saying I didn't have challenges to that, but I really never allowed it to get out of control. You know, I stayed in really good health. I grew my business, but not at an expense. I stayed super tight with my family. I, you know, mm. Um, and again, I told that when I say that, it kind of sounds like, oh, well, that's great, Eric. You didn't have any problems. That's not what it was like. Like I had problems in all of those areas, but I never had anything that was debilitating in any of the areas. They all were getting addressed. Yeah. This is so I, yeah, by that point, the company was kind of moving. Um, I love the Beatles, and I don't even remotely mean to compare Roger and I to the Beatles, but at a point it just made more sense to those guys to break up and to do their own thing. And it wasn't anybody's fault and it wasn't anybody. It just, it was like a forward evolution. I, yeah. I was so uninterested in the personal development business and I was just interested in like the, the program. Yep. 
And I was, I was kind of over the classroom to a degree. I wanted to like take all the culture and core values stuff that I really cared about and just do it. Like, like yeah. do it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, the, the natural evolutions, you know, and sync, somebody has got to be just, you know, Justin Timberlake, Michael yeah. Jackson to the Jackson five. It happens all the time. You know, yeah. you gotta, you gotta, and, and you gotta move on. So well, yeah. And Roger's doing what he loves. You know what I mean? I, we don't talk about business anymore, but um, if we did, we, we could, I just don't really know how his career is now other than he's still doing it. I mean, freedom is now like 25 years old. He's amazing. Last time I saw him speak live was in Ted TEDx and Bend. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, amazing. So Just you know, I'm crazy. Mean, yeah, and like wow. I I speak five or six times a year, and if I had to do ten or twenty, I would hate it. Yeah. So you, it just made sense for you with with where you were at. It's kind of the we were talking about the idiosyncrasies of life. It just that it was the moment where. It was a Tuesday on your second week of the fifth summer. You're like, hey, this is time and you got to move. That's yeah. that's hard to recognize. I guess what would you advise for if maybe someone's listening who maybe they're at that point where they're missing the signs, kind of like that joke of the man's drowning in the water and a boat comes by, God will save me. Another yeah. boat comes by, God will save me and dies. You're in heaven. I sent you two boats, <laughs> dummy. Right? Like So yeah, uh, maybe there's people listening who are missing that sign. It seems like you're very good and maybe it's from a point of self-awareness at recognizing when that opportunity is coming and to take the exit ramp onto the next thing. What would you advise to people or for, for themselves to be able to like recognize that? Cause there's people missing this. <laughs> yeah, I really get that. Um, here's the thing that I think about advice, like, and everybody knows this. So I'm going to say something that's a little bit trite, but it's, I'm going to say it anyway. Um, my advice is unlikely to work for anybody else. Yeah, that's fair. You know what I mean? Like I advise sure. myself <laughs> based yeah. on how I see the world, what I believe, what pushes me, what scares me, what I'm motivated for. I like, I have a ability to fail that is pretty astronomical. <laughs> I really do. Like I've had some extraordinary failures. The failures that I don't, you know, I, I mean, I went to prison for a year. What? Oh yeah, you know, you're like the one person on the planet that doesn't know that, dude. We don't do any prayer for us. This is all organic. I intentionally yeah. avoid any of this. So no, everyone in, <laughs> in my life knows that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I made some like classical, you know, mistakes that we could definitely talk about and dive into if you want. But I mean, like, I sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, failure is such, okay, here's what I'll say from my world. Failure is a freaking gift. It is a gift. It's like, it's a, it's a gift that's wrapped in the most beautiful paper with a bow on top. that's valuable. And I think people have a real hard time with the degree of failure that's required to really go as far as you can go. Um, I'm really interested, deeply interested in my limits. Like I want to know how far I can go. And um, okay. I'm, I've just learned a new sport. I love sports. Like I'm really into sports. Good. Same. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, I was a really, really avid like class five run waterfalls off kayaks, whitewater kayaker for a lot of years, and then I climbed mountains for a lot of years. Classic like, Oregonian bend. Bend is your spot, man. Yeah, no, I know it's home. So I learned how to free dive. I've been scuba diving for thirty years, and I've been watching free diving for I don't know ten years now, and it's just fascinated me from afar. And I just took a bunch of time to really like take multiple classes from like a world-class expert and like get the training, understand the physiology of it. And for me, it's like the most beautiful sport because you find out exactly how far you can go. And if you go further, there's significant consequences, but if you don't go far enough, it doesn't really fulfilling, you know, it doesn't, it it doesn't like really do that thing. And, you know, it combines things. So anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm on a little bit of a tangent now. No, this is great. (laughs) What, what I would say to anybody listening is that unless you are just psyched about what's going on, do something different. Okay. Fair enough. So on that, so follow up, do you mind if I follow up on some of this stuff? Cause there's like, there was seven cans of worms that we just, sorry, sorry. I know. No, 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 no. This is, that's where I come in. You do, you're doing your job. You're just sharing with us your experience and your mentality and your life. My job is to try to dissect this. So let me ask you first about to follow up that advice part. Cause I, I, I respect a lot that you said that the advice, and this is why, for example, I hate things like Tony Robbins or whatever, to be honest with you, I, I hate it when people are like, oh, you should sign up for Tony Robbins's program for $900 and it's going to change your life. And right, 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 right. something doesn't add up, right? This guy is selling 40,000 tickets a year, 50 million tickets. I don't know how many tickets, thousands of tickets a year. Shouldn't we have seen by the math alone that, that he's been doing this? Some, If there was 40,000 people a year for 20 years changing mm-hmm. their lives, it mm-hmm. would impact the world. Like, but why don't we see that? It's because what you said, his advice, while it may be good mm-hmm. and it may be good, well-intentioned, jury's out, the, it worked for him where he was at the time with his experience. It, it's just so unique. And yeah. so it's hard for that really to make an impact in the same way as everyone else. So I respect what you said about that. Maybe the better question is, what's I'm trying to understand your mentality because not everyone thinks this way. And so trying to understand the way that you think about it could shed some light into how to make that jump. It's the same jump as like when someone sells 10,000 units and they're like, ah, no big deal. And your head like, why, how are you doing that? And, and there's a point where it's not at scale anymore. It's a mentality. And so mm-hmm. I guess, what is that mentality that drives you to pursue? You said so beautifully failure. It's, failure is a gift. So to you, what keeps you motivated to continue doing it, even though it might cause you money, which not a lot of people, not a lot of people have a lot of that to go around or time, which we, none of us have enough time yeah. to go around. So what, what leads you to continue to follow that failure? Cause that's hard and scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at it for me, and I think that this would be true for most people, if you look back to the most rewarding things, the things that you're proud of that impacted that were just the funnest that were whatever they were, there was a sacrifice and or an effort and or an energetic exchange where you had to give a lot of yourself. 
when you give a lot of yourself and it doesn't work out, it hurts. That's painful. Okay, good. That's, that's painful. Um, when you give a lot of yourself and it works out, it's triumphant. Okay, good. You get the triumph. And then everybody has a compass that directs them really overtly, or maybe it's under the radar or whatever. And for me, it's, I know this is really, really simplistic to say, but it's true for me, it's mind, body, and spirit. Simple. You know, there's a physical component to life of where do we live? Do my kids have clothing? Do they go to a school? I mean, there's like a really tangible of like physical component of life. There's that mental component of like navigating, like figuring stuff out. And then there's the emotional, spiritual component of how does it feel? For me, I don't create hierarchy in those. I, they're all like, it's a triangle. Um, one of my favorite tattoos is a triangle. Nope, wrong, wrong arm. Um, over here, because I set my goals in threes at all times. And for, for me, for 20, 30 years now, it's got to be all three. This is one of the parts of the book field that didn't work for me. You know what I mean? It didn't work for me that when I accomplished two of my pieces, it wasn't okay to just like be done and, and take a nap or go drink right. a beer or do whatever you want to do. Yeah. So, so it's, I look at it in those terms. Like when I was building freedom, I had to travel. It wasn't like, oh, I need to make more money. We need to hit our goals. It was like, no, I, Roger and I went to the Olympics in Australia. I went kayaking in Chile. I climbed mountains in Africa and in the Himalaya. I mean, I like, I had to, it wasn't negotiable. I think that so many people live other people's lives. They, they live a life that their parents think they should live, that their friends think they should live, that their spouse thinks that they should live, that their community thinks they should live. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. If it's working, that's great. And then maybe it's not always working. I know that my times when I'm not living my life, it doesn't feel right. So then, then you got to step wow. out and do it differently. And sometimes that sucks. Sometimes it hurts. You get burned, you get hurt. And then we're incredibly resilient. You know, we heal. I wow. Do. Yeah. Well, this is, this is well done, sir. You oh. are. Uh, this is great wisdom. I'm I'm not here like take some notes. Ooh, that's good. Write that down. The, okay. Well, dude, you're living this. You don't need to write this down. I mean, look at you. Like, I mean, you've been doing it, it, like what would you rather be doing, Andres, than this podcast? Hmm. I actually talked to Roger about this. The only other thing that I would do, like it that I would drop all of this for and say, hey, screw this, yeah. this podcast is over, is stand up. Stand -up. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Well, yeah. how much stand-up are you doing? That's the hard part with the with the pandy in Portland. There's no places. This there's just now starting to pick out, pick back up again. All right, tell me a joke. Come on, tell me a joke right now. <laughs> One of my own personal jokes. Because I lived with Roger long enough to know that any comedian goes when you say, yeah. tell me a joke. Like, right don't now. say that. Not for free. I'm I'm joking. <laughs> that was my that was like my attempt at humor. So no, I love it. 
there's a there's a there's a comedian that talks about that uh, hannibal burris talks about he's like he was like i was at a bar it's i'll keep the joke from being too vulgar but basically he's like if uh, i'll She's like, tell me a joke funny, man. I think it's supposed to be funny. He goes, well, you know, I don't have the general context, the crowd, the microphone, the stage, lights, the the crowd's consent to tell a joke. Um, and she goes, I thought you were supposed to be funny all the time. He goes, that's not how it works. But like, he he has an exchange with the woman. He's like, I'll show, I'll tell you a joke if you know, whatever. And so I'll I'll leave it at that. So you can go finish that joke, and it's not mine. So I will they'll tell the punchline. But that's the whole premise of the joke is, you tell a comedian to tell a joke, and they're like, damn it. Not here, but no, you're right. I, mean, I do want to pursue it. I, whenever there's an open mic at uh, like a legitimate open mic at Helium, I will go and I'll do it. But it's like, let me know. Let me know when you're months. on because I'm, I'm coming. Sounds great. I'll, I'll work on some stuff and, and get, get a show. I need to get a show going out here. I've met enough people. Um, but anyway, so, but I understand what you mean though. I'm living, I am living a life that what I do gives me inspiration it makes me scared honestly I, i'm scared half the day like oh man you know what if people don't listen or what if people don't like what we have to say and then there's the other half of me that's like it doesn't matter i think i'm doing right by the community that i care about to express and share experiences of people who did this program and have different really interesting perspectives to share on their experience and how they look back on it which this is a great example of one right this is very unique most people haven't really shared this aspect of it of the way that you look at it and and it's really it's been a really cool refreshing take on on not just the experience of selling books but like what you do with that experience and how you live a life that's full i mean i, I don't think that it, i would assume that if i asked you do you feel like you've been living a full life since you left the general answer would probably be yes hmm. even though that you failed i mean I, that's the sense i'm getting from you i don't want to assume about yeah, your life you know but. it's four steps forward two three steps back four steps forward a couple steps back you know i mean yeah. yeah yeah and people think it's just a straight line even the people that know it isn't you yeah. know there's no way zero people that's wild. <laughs> so okay now i gotta ask what, what happened in prison what happened what, what was this prison about i didn't even know about this do you mind telling me about this is that something we can share about or is that no, is, I, is yeah. that a topic like, for Bizzler? No, it's a totally, it's not, a, no, it's not Bizzler. I mean, it, it's, it's everywhere um, in, in my world. It's, pretty, it's, it's an interesting story. Roger and I were four or five years into our business, maybe three or four years into our business. And we were looking, I was looking, I was kind of leading this part of it of like, how do we structure our business? We didn't know anything. Like when we started, we slapped an LLC together. As I mentioned earlier, we hadn't made any money. <laughs> So it wasn't like, you know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, what do we do with all this money? It was really looking forward. We knew we were going to succeed. And we wanted to minimize the liabilities from a legal standpoint. You know, we didn't want to build a company and then get sued. And we wanted to minimize tax liabilities like any good business person would. And, you know, I really went down a rabbit hole of, you know, well, we're running a national business. Do we set up our, our do we set up a, a Delaware corporation? Or do we set up a, a Wyoming court because they've got better tax jurisdiction? And that lately led me to, I was traveling a lot. I was overseas a lot. Um, well, do we set up an offshore business? And like, is that going to be better for a whole bunch of reasons? And we, we figured out not to do that. And I came across some people that had a very, very aggressive and a very unique structure for businesses. It involved charities, involved a 508B2 feeder. It was a really, really complicated and a unique thing. 
And they were like, hey, this is all in the tax code. This is 100% legal. And oh, no. a CPA and an attorney said, yep, you're good to go. So Roger and I signed up. Roger met his wife shortly after. And through their conversation, which I wasn't really private to, uh, privy to, Roger came back and he's like, I'm out. <laughs> oh, boy. And I'm like, great. Like, you got to follow your heart. Do it. You know, do it. Do it's right for you. So he was out. So I knew that it was aggressive and complicated. And I figured in my 28 year old brain that if this was not correct, I'm going to get a letter from the IRS and a phone call that says, Hey, look, we got to talk about this. And I was fully, fully understanding that, yeah, maybe I'll pay some fees or there'll be some fines or whatever. But I think it's legal. I'm reading the IRS code. Three years goes by, five years goes by, eight years goes by, nothing. Oh boy. Nothing. And um, at that point, you know, I'm making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. The business has grown. I'm traveling. I'm overseas. I mean, it's, it's all like I'm living my dream. And a big component of it was service projects. So Michelle and I had started a school for orphan kids in Egypt. We had funded uh, orphanages in India. We had done a lot of really cool things um, internationally. Moved back to Bend, Oregon. It was about 10 years from when I had originally signed the paperwork. Oh, and nine IRS agents with guns showed up at our house. I never got a, God. I never got audited. It wasn't, uh, hey, you know, can we talk about this? Nine guys with guns. And literally when it happened, I laughed with the guys with guns because I was like, they think I'm a terrorist or something. Like this is like, like they think. They think I'm dangerous. I had, They think I'm dangerous. I mean, we had wired money multiple like we wired a lot of money to the middle east <laughs> and i was like fuck did we fund mm. something that is like not correct no oh, no andres it was that's how they treat people that are under investigation for tax evasion that's so, how they treated al capone yeah yeah and i mean here i am like a you know bend oregon like mountain climber and you know i was <laughs> Like I was like, so anyways, so I, I looked at the agent, the special agent charged with his gun. And I said, um, what, what's the problem? He goes, you're evading taxes. And I'm like, I'm absolutely not evading taxes. I go, I think everything I'm doing is legal. I got a CPA and an attorney that, you know, have said that the structure is legal. I go, I am super happy to pay any taxes I owe. I wasn't a tax protester. I wasn't, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, so the long story short is I cooperated for the next four years. We agreed on every single piece of the financial data, how much money was made, where it went, how, like we agreed to everything. And a lot of times in those cases, people are like, no, 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 you made all this money. And they're like, no, I didn't make this money or you owe this. I was like, no, this sure. is how much I made. They're like, yep. This is where it went. Yep. And they were like, you know that this is illegal. And I'm like, I do not know that this is illegal. This is completely, if it's illegal, let I will pay the bills. 
Well, tax evasion, by definition, the felony, you have to know that you're breaking the law. You have to be like, mm -hmm. I am like scamming the government. Yeah, you're uh, aware. Yeah, you're, you're aware. Uh, yeah. Wilf willfully, willfully, what is it? Willfully, yeah, uh, yeah there's, yeah. yeah, got it. So the, the agent looked at me after all of this time and he goes, Eric, you are too smart to know that this is not illegal. And I'm like, well, we're going to have to disagree because obviously I'm not that smart. I'm in this situation. Um, I owed $350,000 in taxes. My legal bills were 400 grand. And Whoa. they indicted me with six counts, three felonies and three misdemeanors. I was facing a total of 18 years in prison. And if I would have pled out to the felonies, I would have likely spent six years in prison. And wow. I'd still be in prison today. So Michelle and I had a really good, interesting conversation. And she's like, you're not guilty. Like, I know you. You're not guilty of the felonies. And I'm not guilty. I knew I wasn't guilty of the felonies. So I said I would rather go to prison than to lie. Like, I'm not going to lie. Um, right. So I told the IRS to pound sand. This is one of my, this is one of the most, this is one of the most horrible parts of the story for me. I had cooperated with them for three years. And then they stopped talking to me after three years and said, we'll get back to you. We're going to like process what's going on. Um, when they showed up the first time, we had a six month old baby. Years later, and our lives are very public. I mean, Facebook community, sure. they were fine. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Um, Michelle was Ben is not a big town. No, like Ben's not a big kind of town. Stuff. Yeah. Um, I was still speaking publicly. Michelle had just gotten pregnant and with our second child. And the IRS waited till our baby was born. They indicted me the week after our child was born. Michelle is holding and breastfeeding a little baby and they waited. Now you could go, oh, that was just um, coincidental. We stopped talking when they had all the information. They got no new information. We didn't hear from them for nine months. When the baby was born, they said, you're indicted on six counts. You're facing 18 years in prison. And if you don't plead guilty in the next 24 hours, we're going to indict Michelle as well. Oh my God. Yeah. She was breastfeeding uh, a, a one week old baby. So that was really, really a, like a, where does the rubber meet the road on how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you navigate that? And kudos to Michelle. I mean, it was amazing. She's like, Hey, if they indict me, fuck them. You know what I mean? Like we didn't do this. This isn't it. So yeah. the stats are is that the IRS wins 98.5% of the time in trial. So we prepped for a trial and right before the trial, after all of this, they came to me and they dropped all the felonies and they said, we'll drop all the felonies. We know you didn't commit those, which I was like, oh, thank you. Oh, wow. But you have to sign guilty on the misdemeanors. So I signed guilty on three misdemeanors 
for failure to file a return, which I was definitely guilty of. And just to be clear, like when I tell that story, I think the way that it was handled by the IRS is absolutely absurd. Like it's absurd. Yeah. And yeah, they're like a mafia. A lot of people are like, that's the real mafia. <laughs> they will come and this is, this take your house. Is, they'll take your family. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's the mafia, man. Pay us our money or we'll ruin your life and yeah, like basically I mean, kill you. I love our country. I could live anywhere in the world. I live here because I love our country. You know, I guess if there's anything that anybody that knows me knows is that I will do whatever I want within the realms of like what's legal. And like, I would live in New Zealand if I wanted to live there, I would live in India or wherever, but I, I love our country. And Ben is great. <laughs> and Ben is great. Yeah. And it has problems, but you know, I, I love it here. Um, so my attorney famously said, Eric, I've been representing, I had a really, really good attorney. He goes, I've been representing people in cases like this for 25 years. Zero of them have gone to prison on a misdemeanor for taxes. You're going to pay some fines. You're going to do some community service. And the judge sentenced me to a year in prison. Wow. Yep. Okay. So what ended up happening? So what was the actual problem? How did they, they screw you? What was the conclusion? Well, I mean, I don't think they screwed me. I just it think had that, to do with those people, right? With the people that you signed the paper with. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a great part of the story. Yeah. So, like, what? While I'm in prison, they had indicted the people that set it all up. That got elevated to the district supreme court. Three federal judges and district supreme court in Denver dismissed the case. Told the IRS it's in the code that what they're doing is correct. If you don't like it, change your code. The people that organized it never went to prison. What the hell? But I signed guilty. I like I, I signed that I was guilty. And I was guilty. I did not file a return that is legally required for three years that I was guilty. Actually, 10 years, but for three years in the case. And a CPA is on record saying, I told Eric not to file that return. So, you know, it's... It's like, do I wish that it went down differently? No, because I can tell you, Andres, like a thousand things in my life that are better now because of that and that experience. Like top of the list is Michelle and I's marriage ended that year. And now I'm like with my person, you know, like Sherry and I, really developed an incredible relationship in the space of that grief. And that was really hard. It was really, really hard for me. And, you know, but my friends, like all of my real friends stayed with me. I didn't lose, I didn't lose a real friendship because of that experience. Um, it, maybe I did and don't know about it, but not that I'm aware of. Um, I was raising none that you missed. <laughs> yeah. I was raising the seed capital for hum during that time, which is oh, wow. pretty amazing. Yeah. And the board of directors backed me, the investors backed me. I was gone for, you know, almost a year and I came back and then we built a great company, you know? So, wow. yeah, I mean, there's, there's articles written about it. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's, it's a great story in a lot of ways. I don't romanticize it. It was really hard, but I'm not a victim at all. You know what I mean? Like the government does what, like nobody's surprised that the IRS acts like assholes. 
I mean, that's like, no, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 there's like, oh, that's really weird. The IRS, It's like flight weird. attendants at Spirit or Southwest. You're like, oh, okay. You know, right. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't expect that from like employees at Trader Joe's, right? Like Trader right. It, it, it's the opposite of that. You're like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The IRS. Yeah, I mean, they're, shit. you know, um, you know, I mean, they are what they are and God, I wouldn't change my life with, for those guys and all, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I don't feel bad for them. I mean, they have their path and they're on what they're on and I would never want to live that life. Somebody's got to do it, I guess. That's the, yeah. just wish they didn't do it that way. <laughs> yeah. So um, I mean, it, came with, it came with a lot of hardships, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like a zero day on the book field. You know what I mean? You, you, nothing teaches you about yourself than you know, uh, than adversity. And I'm definitely a better dad after not spending nine months, 10 months with my kids, because like every hug is a lot more precious um, in a way that, that you can conceptualize, but until you can't see your kids because of an imbalance in the government of the country you live in that you love, it, you don't really get, you know, you don't get that. So this is why like the advice that I give to myself would be really irrelevant to anyone else because it's so personal to me. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but I get, I, in a weird way, I relate when you're talking about, I very much relate to the experience of being separated from my father because of an imbalance of the yeah. government that I lived in. Um, <laughs> for sure you do. So my dad, yeah. Uh, uh, my dad moved here for four months before we came. So there was like a, and so he probably would relate to what you're saying more than anything. <laughs> Cause yeah, he, was you were, he wasn't you were, in prison, but it might as well have been. For sure. Yeah. Well, you were in elementary school. Yeah. I was in, uh, would, well, the years were there different. So I was going to start uh, second grade. So I had to repeat or third grade. So I had to repeat second grade when I moved here. Yeah. Cause that's when my birthday was whatever, but we had nothing. I mean, it was, Wow. I hadn't thought about this until now, but I, we just bought this house in Portland, Oregon for like 300 or $420,000. And like, it's 1500 square feet. And I know that might not mean a lot to a lot of people, but the, whoa. That's a big deal. The, yeah. The place that we moved to wasn't that. So. Yeah. Huh. I really so I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Where it's like that's advice for me only. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just think of like what's your dad? What's your dad up to now? Uh, he he's self-employed. He owns a business uh, that he teaches people who don't speak English how to, and he preps them for passing the driver's education. Yeah. Because people move here and they don't know anything about traffic law, so obtaining a license is. Yeah, not just going to the DMV. It's like, oh, it's way more. So he essentially teaches them. He does like that driver's ed school, but specifically for people. I mean, I'm sure he he also has uh, students who are local and American, but it's primarily like like non-immigrant or immigrant folk. So, yeah. for example, I'll call him sometimes and he'll be he'll be in class, and he's teaching a class or something, and he speaks Sudanese because. There's a lot of people from Sudan who moved to Nebraska. <laughs> and so he has to teach them how to like go right or left as he's teaching them. So my dad like knows Sudanese. He knows like a bunch of languages because he's had to learn how to say all these things in like all the different 
kinds of people that come to him because he's like the non-English driver's ed teacher. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, he yeah. must be so proud. I hope so. That's the idea. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, that's not that's not what my life is about, but yeah, there is an ask, there is an edge to my tenacity. If there, if I can even say that, that is about like making sure that that wasn't a waste of sacrifice mm-hmm. for him and my mom, you know. So, and your and your kids, I I guarantee you from the kid side, your kids will appreciate that extra extra hug or that the the extra love and the hug from the longing that you experienced. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. that's awesome, man. Um, thanks for sharing that. I know that's probably, it's, I know it's not easy to talk about hard things. Um, but I appreciate you being honest and transparent because that's really cool. That's a, that's a story. That's a lesson learned. And still, even though people might not take advice because they can't relate exactly to that, it's definitely worth learning about and teaches a lesson. I'm being careful. Um, okay. So hang on. I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. So we have some time. I wanted to talk about a little bit about your side of the story of how kombucha got started. Cause I'm fascinated by it. Uh-huh. Um, I share so much about hum, not just because we are partners with hum, um, but because I just, a really appreciate what you guys, like I said earlier, what you guys stand for the idea. We have a quote from Michelle's episode where it was all I knew was how to make kombucha and go door to door. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what we did. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's so yeah, yeah. To, to connect that. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about your experience and, and kind of what that journey was like, and then we can get into a little bit of Southwestern stuff, some rapid fire questions and some ponytails. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll put a timeline to it. So 2009, uh, we moved to Bend 2008. 2009. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. The, the world was a little bit up, up, up in, up in upheaval. Two thousand and nine, Michelle meets Jamie, and they become super fast friends. This is the end of two thousand and eight, and they come home one day and they're like, "We're gonna start a business," and I was like, "Awesome! What are you gonna do?" And they're like, "We don't know, but it's gonna be fun and healthy and something really good." And it was really, really endearing. And they would sit around the kitchen table talking about hydroponic farming and making natural skincare products and doing like all of these crazy hippie chick organ things. Granola. granola. Straight up granola. And I was working at Freedom and speaking and running my whatever I was doing. So I would come down out of my home office and I would make them lunch. I don't know. I just got in the habit of like, they're having a business meeting at the table and I'd be like, Hey, two girls want some sandwiches. So they would do that. And then one day, so my mom taught me how to make kombucha back in Wisconsin in the nineties. So I had been making kombucha for like 20 years. And if you do anything, well, if I do anything for 20 years, I'm going to get good at it. You know, like, (laughs) I naturally, yeah. I mean, like, like so many of the little things that like are the magic of it was accidental, like blending green and black tea. I was literally out of black tea, which I had only made kombucha with black tea. And then one day, some year I was like out. And instead of going to the store, I was like, well, fuck it. I'll just use green tea as well. So I blended the green and the black tea and it tasted way better than anything I'd ever made before. So I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like one day there was a heat wave and the house like got really, really hot. And then the kombucha changed. So like 
temperature, size of jars, kind of tea. Like there's like 50 variables that go into like making kombucha that I stumbled on. Like none of it was intentional. It was just like 20 years later, it like morphed. So by the time we got to Bend, I made insanely good kombucha. Um, if I do say so myself. And this is it. This was it. This was, uh, it. Honestly, it's better. This is it. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm just saying like, it, it did have influence on how this tastes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I want to pause right here. I don't mean to interrupt your story because I want to hear the rest of it, but just so people know, because some people might be listening. They're like, what the hell is kombucha? Like I had that question this week. Yeah. It's a drink. Don't Google it. But I, to be honest, and this is, I, I don't know if I even told Michelle this, but before I met Michelle, before her episode, it was the first time that I had tried hum. So like, yeah. I tried it live on the air with her. Okay. Now, up to this point, I'd been in Portland now for like a few months and I could not vibe. It tasted yeah. like the after, like when you throw up and then yeah. you put it, it doesn't come out of your mouth. It just like yeah. comes back down. Yeah. It, the aftertaste was like that. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm nervous because I'm going to drink this drink in front of this lady who is the owner of this company. She, you know, she was the founder of this company. And what if I hate it, but I got to be honest because I don't believe in that. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Right, 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 so right. I was nervous and I tried it live for the first time on the air and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. So it's just, okay, I was wondering so my, mom, my mom's kombucha, like when she taught me how to make kombucha, hers is the kombucha that you think you just threw up in your mouth a little bit. Yes, it's not good. No, no, but it's so healthy and most tastes are acquired. So yes. like over time, if, if you drank my mom's kombucha every day for a couple months, you'd start to vibe with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, 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 it's yeah. got a thing where, I mean, nobody likes the taste of vodka the first time they take a vodka shot. Right. You're not like, oh, I've been missing that all my life. Yeah. And then so I think the first time you ate cheese where you're like, yeah. what the fuck is this? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's a very, it's a, yeah, whatever. So it's tea. Yeah. It's tea that's fermented and it's fermented with a culture of bacteria and yeast. It chemically changes the tea, throws a bunch of probiotics and B vitamins in it. And it creates a completely natural energizing immune supporting health drink. That's the yes. deal. It's good for your gut health. Yada, yada, yada. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So hold on. Sorry. So back to you. You made this amazing kombucha. Yeah. So Jamie is eating a sandwich with Michelle and Michelle's like, Hey, do you want some kombucha? And Jamie's like, what's kombucha? And sure. that's how it started. So they're thinking about what business to do. Jamie drinks the kombucha and goes to Michelle. I can sell this to everybody. And Michelle's like, great. Michelle actually doesn't like sales at all. I honestly, she might not have told you this. I don't think Michelle has ever sold a bottle of kombucha. <laughs> no, like, like I think she stopped selling stuff when she got out of Southwestern. So Jamie did sales and Michelle made the kombucha and it started off in our kitchen. And uh, I was like, go girls, go. Like I, I had nothing to do with the business. I would get together with them like once a year. And I bought him some stuff like for a couple hundred bucks. Like, I mean, nothing, whatever. Yeah. Four years later, it's called kombucha mama. Right. At the time. That's right. That's moms right. that are doing their thing and they sold it door to door and they sold it to the farmer's market, the farmer's market. And they sold it to some retailers in Ben. four years later, they've got a really great local following. Like 
in Bend, kombucha mama was a thing. Like it was really a thing. And what was really interesting is people were calling them from Seattle, from San Francisco, from Denver going, we want to carry your kombucha. And there was zero chance. They did, they had no manufacturing. They were in like a 900 square foot, like little sure. warehouse thing. They graduated from the house, but I want to say revenues were like 200 grand a year and like break even, you know what I mean? Like you're, it was just, it was just a, a hobby still almost. Not like, a hobby. They were putting in the work, but it, but, yeah. but it wasn't like making them money. No. And they weren't really working. I mean, you know, it was like 10 hours a week for Michelle, 15, 20 hours a week. Maybe Jamie was working more. I don't know. I mean, it was like, it was a cool thing. So they came to me in earnest and said, Hey, what do we do? You know what I mean? What do, do we stay? Do we go big? Do we stay small? Do we like, what do we do? And I said, I don't know. Like you guys need to do some soul searching. Like, what do you want your business to be? Like, like just classic Eric advice, like who and what do you want to be? There's no wrong answer. So they came back a while later and they said, we want to be huge. Like we want to really grow this thing. And I said, okay, you need two things. You need money, you need capital, you know, you need equipment, you need a facility, you need all this stuff and you need a management team. Like you need people that want to and know how to run a business, which is not either of you. And they were like, okay, will you help? And I'm like, sure, I'll raise the capital for you. I'll like, that'll be easy. And then I'll help you hire a CEO. So I wrote a check and then raised about a million bucks. And uh, they had a lot of enthusiasm. And Jamie and I were interviewing CEOs. And we couldn't find anybody that it just wasn't fitting. You know, there's nobody that was qualified that would do it because <laughs> it was so early. And that everybody that wanted to do it wasn't really qualified. So at the exact same time, I've got two life events going on with me. One, I'm getting indicted by the IRS and I'm like, everybody's telling me you will not go to prison for this. Like this is a pain in your ass and you will not go to prison for this. Everybody's telling me that. My lawyer, friends, mentors, everybody is like, dude, you're, you're not going to prison. Like you're willing to pay your taxes. You're not a tax evader, you're not whatever. And at the same time, I was, I was over the business of freedom, like the business part of it. I just didn't want to run the company. I just, it was over it. It was, it was time for me to do something different. So one day I had that epiphany where I was like, all right, fuck it. I've already raised the money. I'm this, I know the business. I'm going to build this company. I'm going to use all of the skills that I've learned to build the right culture to grow the business, to build a sales team, to do what we need to do. And um, I gave Jamie and Michelle my resume. And Michelle's like, we've got two kids to feed. Like you can't like give up your income. And I'm like, we've never been hungry. We're not going to be hungry. And Jamie is like, we kind of didn't agree on being partners, but we got there and she, I was like, Hey, you tell me where you want to take the company. And I'll just build it to what you want it to be. Like, if you want it to go left, I'll take it left. If you want it to go right, I'll take it right. So we agreed on that. And then we went from 200 grand to 20 million in four years. That's crazy. And then the story of like how it grew into a national brand is, is uh, Michelle tells it to, for the sake of, of, of 
of like the more details of that, you guys can go there. But I also wanted to hear it a little bit from you from a CEO standpoint of like, how did you, cause this was your first time being like, well, no, you were, I guess you were, you had already built a big company with Roger. So that experience had to have helped, but how, what did you find that was different from like, Hey, we're setting up classes and helping people improve personally to we're selling a product that's that has to have a brand that is a that has to have regulations and and mm-hmm. and the, what, what what was what was like that experience learning that for you yeah. to grow it yeah that's a super good question so what if i had to point back to like what was the most pivotal education that i got at freedom i was inside of and working very closely with some of the most unbelievably incompetent senior leaders and management teams, like they were unbelievably shitty. And I was inside of some incredibly well-run organizations, like really, 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 really amazing men and women. And I was just a student of it. I like some of them were privately held. Some of them were regional offices of big companies. Some were this and we're like, I was inside of thousands of different organizations over that period. And a lot of them I got to know really intimately Hmm. either coaching their CEOs or being hired by founders to come in and do culture work. Um, So the first thing I did at home, like very first thing was to build a board of directors. I was like, I have no idea what to do. I've never run a beverage company. So I put, we, we had an incredible talent of people, uh, Gary fish from Deschutes brewery had built one of the largest. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, those guys are amazing. And Gary like signed out. It's like, yeah, I'll be on your board. I mean, there's no way, no way that hum does what hum did without that board of directors. Zero. Like just wouldn't happen. How did you yeah. know to get the right people? Like Mentally, it's not yeah. if I'm getting a super technical into this, but it's honestly like, fascinating from a standpoint of like there's got to be other people who are in this and maybe asking the same thing or maybe i'm just maybe it's just me but i'm curious when i did my ted talk i did a a, a ted talk at the first ted here in bend and the guy that like led that whole thing there's a couple of them that that, that did it but on the board of directors was a guy named jim shell and jim had built and scaled four different companies he was deep into his 70s this amazing guy and we just met in that moment and he signed on to be my mentor. He's like, I want to know you. And I'm like, I want to know you. <laughs> so we were yes. like, yeah, like I had just come off of Everest and I was, you know, speaking and like, here I am new in town, kind of new in town, like three, four years in. And we just like, I had a lot to learn from him and he really cared about giving back. So I came to him. He was the first person I called when I said, Jim, I'm leaving my speaking business to run this kombucha company. It wasn't even called hum yet. We, that was the first thing I was like, I can't be a kombucha mama. Like, I mean, I, like, yeah. I'm all like my, my senior teams are all like half or more women. Like I'm really it, like, I love having women in the room, but I, you can't call me a mama. I mean, that's not going to work. So we had to, <laughs> we had to rebrand that. And stuff. it can't be kombucha daddy. Cause that's just weird. No, so. no, yeah. Yeah. So we rebranded a, a really, really incredible firm here in town led by Paul Evers um, and Renee Mitchell rebranded the company with us. And, and um, you know, Jim pointed me, he, he literally wrote small business for dummies. I mean, he's the author of small business for dummies. So he's just an amazing mentor, you know, and, and, you know, work hard, study hard and be teachable. I mean, those are 
that, that stuff wow. doesn't go away, you know? So, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And now it's national. I mean, is it, are you guys, inter- are they international yet? I don't oh, know. Yeah. I, think probably... I think it's a dozen or more countries. There's a whole production facility wow. in Europe. That's so bananas, man. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. That story is incredible. This is really cool. Yeah. It's a oh, man. But, I mean, culture matters and, and why matters, you know, like yeah. we knew why we were building the business. Right. Yeah. And it, and, and that's so people overlook that, you know, that mm-hmm. I feel like that's something that I'm trying to be careful not to overlook doing the show. Cause we have, like you said, a lot of place spinning of like, we're trying to do Bizzler and we're trying to do reunions and we're trying to do this, but keeping the main thing, the main thing for as much as possible is, is key. And for us, it's like, Hey, the goal is to connect alumni. Yeah. So the question we asked ourselves is, Hey, is this event that we're doing or this thing that we're focused on? helping connect alumni yes or no if the answer is no move on even though it's a cool idea i just got to do the next thing yeah that makes sense i i i I take that that's so cool um all right well then now what are you up to because since um what are you because you're now you're being you're in fiji so what what do you do that allows you to be in fiji half time or whatever i honestly sometimes i'm like really present and when you sent me that email and you're like what are you up to right now and i'm like right now I, I honestly, I was like, I, don't know, like I, I wasn't being cheeky. I can see where like the question. I love it. Question. <laughs> yeah. I was like the seed live in Fiji and you're visiting Ben, but then you told me you were in Ben. So I was like, wait, so, okay. So what do you do? Like, what do you, what was your day to day look like? What, what do you, what are you up to now? Yeah. So after hum, I um, turned around a cannabis company that a friend had founded. Um, you know, they wow. were really, really, they were losing a million bucks a quarter and it was a yeah. great product and a great company and a a lot of great to it. So, um, that was hard. You know, I'm not, I'm not native to cannabis. So I didn't know, I, I, you know, I didn't have the history that a lot of people did, but I had consumer goods and I had leadership. So, um, we turned that around, got it profitable in like six quarters and then sold it to a publicly traded company that was kind of consolidating some of the smaller cannabis companies. Um, I stuck around and consulted with them and helped transition for a while. That was in like 2020 and 2021. And then I've just had my creative juices like going. Um, Sherry and I have two projects that are really nascent. They're not revenue. They're maybe you're going to happen. Maybe you're not going to happen, but it will. The reason it won't happen is if we just cannot launch um, we're like fully committed to them happening. Mm. And then, you know, it's like, how do you get things off the ground? So, you know, maybe this will be a big fizzle and maybe it'll be big. I mean, the one we're working on, we're working on two. Um, the one will be the coolest project I've done in my life. It's, it's, it'll be, it'll be the coolest. But that's that's one of those where we'll have to have you back to tell us when it launches story from Bizzler. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll give you the teaser. Here's the teaser. The teaser, and this is really a teaser, is almost every human cares at a degree or two about their mental, emotional, and physical wellness. Like they care. Like we do, we have an, we're innately hardwired to care about our, our right. mental health, our physical health, and our emotional health. So Sherry and I are creating an experience where people go. And this idea, part of the reason it's been delayed, we've been on this for like five years in our brain, but like if we would have launched before COVID, it would have absolutely failed. Like it would, yeah. 
yeah, it's like, it would be like opening a restaurant like right before COVID or something. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. this is a physical experience. It's a place where you go. And throughout history, there's two things that have been really consistent in humanity's search for healing, for expansion, mm. for happiness. One of them is art. Everything from paintings to music to sculpture to cultural art. And then the other one is the elements, earth, air, fire, and water. We are going to combine those two ancient modalities or historically important modalities into one experience. And it's like nothing I've ever done, nothing Sherry's ever done. And it's going to be beautiful or it's not going to launch. Sweet. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, man, I'm excited to hear more about it. Once you guys are able to like, kind of give some more details, I'm excited for this. Um, okay. I'll tell you, I have to tell you about the other one. This is just a quick plug. It may or may not happen. Okay. I was going to say, it was, it was just, I literally was like, okay, what else are you doing? <laughs> We're doing a couple's retreat. We're going to beta test a couple's retreat. And the retreat is also, it's for couples to come together and talk about how do we grow individually and how do we grow as a couple, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And what is the role, if any, of psychedelics in that journey? Very interesting. So a lot of people, at least in Oregon, when people hear that, like in Tennessee, they're probably like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah, Yeah, like, so um, Oregon... Uh, as people probably know, has passed psilocybin legislature. Uh, Sherry will be one of the first state um, certified psilocybin counselors or therapists. Um, She's going through that training right now. And then I've been doing ceremonial work um, since I was 18, 19 years old, not even using psychedelics. Um, Sweat lodges, pipe circles, Native American and EP ceremonies. Um, so I think that there's a lot of intentionality around ceremonial work. And in my opinion, psychedelics have a very, very potentially beneficial role in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially if it's thoughtful yeah. and if it's, yeah. So now, I'm a big believer in that now I've never done them and I don't know that I ever will, but the idea of people using psychedelics instead of manufactured drugs to try to deal with some of the things that they're dealing with for sure it doesn't sound any more ludicrous than just saying hey take this pill right um greta huerta has been on here and we've had a conversation with actually several people about psychedelics on the show and doing like uh healing work with it we uh yeah there's i mean ayahuasca and all this other stuff too that you can use and as an as a south american that's a you know not a not far-fetched from our experience that's really sweet and the concept of using it for couples and helping them with their relationship, personal and like inner and outwardly, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. That is super so sweet. Our retreat won't have any medicine or substances. Like that's not what it's about. It's solely an educational experience for uh, them. What are the substances? What would you use and why? What wouldn't you use and why? Debunking a lot of the myths. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people ask me a great book I've read recently. If you're at all interested in the topic, Albert Hoffman's um, autobiography called LSD, My Problem Child. He was the inventor. He was the the Swiss chemist who invented LSD. 
it's an unbelievable book. You, you almost cannot have an opinion about LSD, in my opinion, unless you've read that book, because it really talks about what what is it. So this is purely educational, not experimental from the yeah. from the thing. Yeah. That's super cool, man. That is so cool. I appreciate you guys need to start a podcast for that to like who knows? Yeah. Yeah. That that would be pretty wild though. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So talking, cool. talking to couples about their experience, healing and growing. There's a lot of yeah. healing to be done, but there's a lot of like, hey, everything is great. And then where else could it go? Yeah. It's just moving. Yeah. There's two different places. Some people, that's another thing about like therapy in general is it's not always just for people who are hurt or when you're injured physically yeah. or mentally, it's, it could be the thing where it's like, it also helps you discover the next level of your, right. That happened to me. Physical therapy is one of those things where I went in there cause my, I had lower back problems and I tore a muscle. And then after kind of uh, all better, I kept going to them. Cause it's like, I, every time I come here, I'm a lot more mindful of how my body moves, which yeah. really helps me with my regular day to day. And I'm not yeah. hurting, but it just, it's good to keep that in focus um so and this it works the same way with mental and, and uh emotional too so therapy but um that's so cool man that is so cool oh okay okay hold on we're running out of time here and i want to ask you a little bit about some southwestern stuff for so we can actually <laughs> but here's here's the deal i got some rapid fire questions i'm going to ask you and so that way this will spring up some memories of some of your stories that i'm sure we still have, have so many to tell but uh i'll ask you these and then we'll jump into a ponytail or something is that cool? Good. Do it. All right. Here we go. Rapid fire question. Now we're transitioning into Southwestern stuff. Uh, so it's going to be a shift from psychedelics to the book field, although whatever. Um, in your time selling books of your four and a half summers, what was your favorite territory in whether that state or the city or the county that you sold in? Holland, Michigan. Let's go. Michigan's yeah. I've heard is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like the weather's perfect there during the summer. I've heard good things. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite tur kind of turf within that territory? So it's yeah, like yeah, like, big brick. Yeah, like I was in the country. I was not a big brick knocker. Yeah, yeah, like mi mi like middle class, middle class country. That's what you want. Everybody, you know, we love it. Did you have a favorite advanced sales tape that you listened to when you were selling? Yeah, Bob. Well, no, I mean, here's the one that I listened to, like, until it broke was Bob Richards address to the 1984 Olympic team. What? That is the first time we've heard of this. Oh, it's, the, great, it's, a, it's the single greatest motivational speech I've ever heard in my life. It was in the in the it was in the kit. It wasn't advanced selling. It was just straight up motivation. Bob, what is it again? What Bob Richards, Bob Richards he delivered, he delivered the keynote speech for the 1984 Summer Olympics. And they put that in our sales case, my second or third summer, second summer. Yeah. There it is, summer. Wow, I'm gonna have to go listen to this after we're done here. <laughs> okay, a little bit of an asterisk. Roger and I looked for 20 years for a copy of that tape. I mean, Roger did the keynote at Southwestern and he couldn't find it. And we finally found it. I have it somewhere digitally, but it's like really grainy. It's like bad but it's still like i can do most of it verbatim still so it holds up yeah i love it um your favorite hq i'm sorry I, it broke up oh your favorite hq i didn't really have one like i don't have one that i'm like yeah yeah i guess brady walsh and i lived the two of us my fourth summer in holland we we were he was like number two in power rookies and i was top 10 student managers and we crushed i mean we had a lot of fun and worked hard and 
and then took, <laughs> took Saturdays off a lot of times. Good. That's how you should do it. Uh, your favorite breakfast spot, if you had one. Uh, the Texan, my first summer. <laughs> yeah. Those places stick to your heart, man. They do. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best eggs you ever ate. Um, what was And then your favorite or best follow day? Oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, Dave Hartung was my student manager and it was his sixth summer. And there was one day where we just split all the demos. I was, uh, you know, rookie on President's Club. He was a sixth summer on President's Club and I had a lot to learn from him. He felt like he had a lot to learn from me and we just went and like demo, demo the whole day. I love that. Yeah. Um, alrighty. So that concludes the rapid fire questions. Hopefully that jogs some memories, but now we'll do a, a ponytail. Uh, so as, as is the name of the podcast, this is usually the story of our guests experience, whether it's directly from their Southwestern experience or in relation to something that they use from Southwestern that then like really impacted them. So if you guys have stuck around with us so far, here is Eric's ponytail. Take it away, my friend. You know, I don't know. I, I know what you're asking. It's like, I don't know how to answer it. Um, sure. I mean, what I can say is, is that there's so much from Southwestern that I ultimately rejected because I thought it was culty that I'm so glad that I experienced. Because like if I hadn't viscerally experienced it and rejected it, I wouldn't be as happy as I am now. So it's like a really, like, <laughs> I love that. Like, I don't. I'm not like it's a Christian cult. You know what I mean? I'm not. I'm like, I don't belong in a Christian cult. Like, I know that. Um, so I don't like, I don't have a problem with it. It's like, it's, it's like I'm, I sifted through manure and I was like, wow, this, like, there's got to be something really beneficial here. That's good. That's great. That's wonderful. And here are three reasons why. Like, literally, when I got sentenced to prison, shocked every single person in the courtroom, like the hundred people that showed up and like everybody that had told me, I immediately went to, this is good. This is great. And this is wonderful. And I went through why, and it really landed for me emotionally. And I had a great experience in prison and my life went on an upward trajectory. So I guess that would be, you know what I mean? There's some things that got programmed that, that there's some, some, some really, really, really positive programming that, I, I still love cold showers. I took one today. I mean, that's, that's so funny. Well, I still step back sideways when I knock on a door. Of course. Like, why wouldn't you? Why I mean, would you not? Right. It's yeah, so I mean, awkward. Not it's, it's, it's obvious that that's the way you step on a door. <laughs> you know what I mean? Come on now. It's such a beautiful experience. And then there's so much of it that I just, it just doesn't fit me at all. That's so funny. Yeah. I love this. I love this. And actually, I like that it wasn't like a story, but more like a, hey, this is what I still stick with. This is the thing yeah. that still follows me and I follow it. Like it just full, it just worked for you. Whatever yeah. Venn diagram that you crossed with Southwestern and that experience yeah. at that time yeah. has been still attached like a ring that 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 Venn diagram is still a part of a lot of what you do. And I get that too. No doubt. Yeah. That, I love it. Well, then what it turned your life into afterwards and how you can, how you harnessed every inch of that, every ounce of that experience. Yeah. That's wonderful, man. Oh, wow. Well, 
this is great folks we'll close it up here we'll uh we'll wrap it up with our episode today i appreciate you so much eric for being on the show man this has been a blast i hope you had a fun on the show yeah dude well when you're in bend oregon we're hanging out and when i'm in portland we're hanging out yeah yeah and actually stick around before i close this uh after we end the recording i have some stuff i want to share with you uh, as far as like when we'll go and connecting on that but uh thank you guys so much for listening we'll catch you on the next episode my name is andres gamboa this has been the ponytails podcast thank you so much